when Jesus said they'd be fishing for people, Peter didn't realize they'd actually need a boat. You may already know that Jesus did a lot of traveling by sea during his earthly ministry, primarily crisscrossing the Sea of Galilee, going to different villages or desolate places to get away from the crowds. And even on some occasions, Jesus taught and preached from a boat while the people sat on the shore listening to him. I have a hunch that eight of the 12 disciples likely had to rely or lean on the likes of Peter, Andrew, James, and John for their prior nautical expertise, given that they were fishermen before Jesus called them. I doubt, for example, that Matthew, the late IRS operative for Rome, had much training or experience being out on the open seas. Peter knew how to upkeep sails, tie the right knots, helm a fishing boat, and chart a course across the Sea of Galilee wherever Jesus desired to go. He practically grew up on the water, you know. Trades were passed down from generation to generation in those days, like it is today in some cases. Peter's father was likely a fisherman, and his father's father was likely a fisherman. It was in Peter's blood, or his DNA, that we might say today. But I have to imagine also that a part of Peter being so immersed in the first century nautical culture, that he, along with his brother and the sons of thunder, must have known the mythos or superstitions surrounding the sea. Many people in the ancient world, Jewish or otherwise, they generally feared or avoided large bodies of water. It made them nervous, timid. Goosebumps would be on their skin, all because of the stories and the legends that they heard about the waters and their connection to chaos. Chaos is disorder. Whether it be simply in life, in nature, in other people, or even in our own impulses, chaos is mayhem. Perhaps you've seen the Allstate insurance advertising campaigns where an actor represents the unexpected and the disastrous in daily life to persuade viewers to be better protected from mayhem like me. Chaos has a reputation of being undesirable because of its unpredictability and random tendencies in our world. Wherever chaos is, more times than not, misfortune and pain and even suffering tend to follow for humans like us. Often what ha shouldn't have happened, happened. Because chaos threatens God's desire for order in this world. And in the minds of the Hebrews, God and chaos have been arch foes as early as creation. If you recall the opening chapter of Genesis, after God created the heavens and the earth, we are given our first mention of the existence of chaos. 
The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. In other words, after God spoke the world into existence, the world was initially in a state of disorder. God hadn't brought order to creation yet, and we're told the Spirit of God hovered over, anyone want to guess, the waters. Chaos was symbolized and these primordial, pre-creation, distortedly ordered waters. Perhaps you're seeing the connection between water and chaos for the Israelites. The earliest image or symbol of chaos was water. But do you remember what God did later in creation? God separated the waters from the sky. The Jews believed that God spoke to the chaotic waters and the waters obeyed his command. People who think of the sea only as a scenic location for a vacation where you can slurp overpriced fruity beverages don't understand how the ancients or even some still today view large expanses of water. However, if you're a survivor of a hurricane or a tsunami, you know exactly what they're talking about. For people who make a living out in the sea or serving in the Navy, you probably know this to be true. While on one hand, water is necessary to sustain human life, on the other hand, water has a dangerous side to it, an unpredictable side of it, a chaotic side to it. And when water surges out of control, it is no longer seen as something that gives life, but as something that can potentially extinguish it. That's how the ancients always viewed large bodies of water, a metaphor of the place where chaos resides, an ever-present reminder that it exists untamed. That's why when chaos rears its ugly head in the Old Testament, the writers speak of it in this way. They always speak of the sea that threatens God's people. Psalm 69 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come to my neck. Deliver me from the sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. The Old Testament always speaks of God's power over the sea that rescues God's people and instills confidence in God's people for the future. Psalm 89 says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you, you who rule the raging sea, when its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 107 says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress, and he made the storm still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Or Isaiah 51, I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. So to traverse across large bodies of water, for many Jews living in the first century, it was a risk. It was scary to travel across the dwelling place and uh, the embodiment of chaos in that world. And I'm sure that thought had to have crossed Peter's mind. But what about, what about Jesus? Did Jesus know any of this? Was Jesus aware of the history surrounding the sea? Surely, as a religious and smart man, he knew the superstitions. Jesus knew the scriptures. He had to have been aware of the Jewish folklore surrounding the water. Or maybe not. 
Jesus was initially a carpenter after all, not a sailor. But maybe, maybe Jesus knew the legends about chaos and the water and he wasn't nervous. Peter's learning new things every day about this guy and Jesus seems pretty confident to be traveling across the chaos-ridden waters all the time. No reservations on the part of Jesus, even if there might have been some in the twelve. And so one evening... Per the usual routine, Jesus orders the twelve to get into an ordinary fishing boat to cross to the other side. Nothing out of the ordinary for Peter and the twelve. The skies are clear. The sun was beginning to set. Jesus was dismissing the crowds after a fruitful time of teaching, and the disciples were packing up their belongings and preparing their vessel for departure. All the disciples and Jesus pile into the boat and kick off from shore and begin their give-or-take two- to three-hour journey to the country of the Gerasenes. All is well until suddenly the weather begins to change. Peter and the other disciples on the deck feel the shift in the winds. The steady increasing size of the waves splashing into the boat and the crackle of thunder in the distance. Peter turns and finds Andrew's gaze. The two make an unspoken agreement. A storm is coming. However, these fishermen are used to being in the northern part of Galilee near their home in Bethsaida. Tonight, they're traveling to the west and they're nearing the middle of the lake, a more perilous place to be for what's in store for them. And Peter sees in the eyes of his brother, a trained and professional seafarer like him, dread and panic. And similar feelings are beginning to swell up inside Peter too. They are going to be held hostage by one of Galilee's infamous and sudden windstorms. Even back in the first century, all knew to some degree the unpredictable yet violent weather patterns that tended to afflict the Sea of Galilee. The geography of the body of water lent itself to such occurrences. The lake was like a bowl, and surrounding the bowl was this semi-tropical climate brimming with warm, moist air. But on the far eastern side of the lake were hills, some stretching as high as 2,000 feet high, where cool, dry air resided. And now what often happens and still happens today, this cool air from the east gets blown in and collides with the warm, warm air around the rim of the bowl, causing these easily formable turbulent storms. And compounded on this issue is the shallowness of the Sea of Galilee. The waters are quickly whipped up more rapidly than other pools of water. All of these factors play into the dangerous weather phenomena that regularly and unpredictably occurs in this body of water. And the disciples and Jesus have unwittingly stumbled into one. Likely, when they left the shore, the winds and sea were calm, no storms in the forecast. But this particular sea's weather can easily change on a dime, right under your very nose, even to the most seasoned of sailors. All the disciples begin to freak out. 
The language used by Mark validates their panicked reactions to the situation. The waves were breaking into the boat. The vessel was taking on water. The contents of the lake were beginning to invade and infiltrate the sanctuary of the boat. They are inevitably going to sink if they can't somehow navigate out of this predicament or formulate some other plan. This is the worst case scenario. Peter remembers the fables about the sea and about sea with relation to chaos. And this imagery is less imaginary and becoming more of a reality for him. And all the disciples believe their stint with Jesus may end that night. The text doesn't tell us who surmised they needed to alert Jesus to this catastrophic situation. I guess you know things are bad when all the experienced sailors come to the unanimous decision to consult the carpenter-turned-rabbi for guidance in the middle of a storm at sea. But the disciples stumble upon another issue. Amidst the pouring rain and the howling winds and the unstable waves, they can't find Jesus. They haven't noticed him wrestling with the turbulence or fighting the waves like they have. In fact, Jesus this entire time has been at the rear of the boat, asleep on the cushion. The disciples have only been offshore for maybe 30 to 45 minutes, but in that time, Jesus has made a makeshift bed and fallen asleep. And not only fallen asleep, Jesus has remained asleep despite the crisis erupting around him. Christ must be a heavy sleeper to not be awoken by the winds and the crashing waves and the claps of thunder and the screaming disciples or something else is allowing the Son of God to catch some Z's during that chaotic voyage. Many months ago, I came across an interesting article that talked about sleep among the gods in ancient Near Eastern religions. There was a common reoccurring theme in pagan mythology regarding how gods would sleep either one of two reasons the first reason would be the gods could sleep because it was their divine prerogative being the gods they had the right or privilege to the leisure of sleep if they wanted to but the other reason was more compelling sleep for a deity was a sign of their divine authority it was a symbol of the gods' unchallenged authority as the supreme deity, usually reserved for the head god of a certain pantheon. The ability to sleep undisturbed was the symbol of that deity's absolute dominion over the heavens and the earth and the underworld. And it may surprise you, but the Old Testament actually speaks of our God sleeping just like that. Many times in the Old Testament, the people of God have cried out to the Lord to awaken himself from his divine slumber, to attend to chaos happening in their world. Whether it be in the Psalms or the prophets, many try to wake God up to address an old foe who has returned and is causing, ha causing havoc on God's people. Read the Psalms, Psalm 35, awake and arouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my Lord, my God. 
God. Psalm 44, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Psalm 74, arise, O God, or literally in the original Hebrew, get out of bed, God, defend your cause. Isaiah 51, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old. Repeatedly, faithful, God-fearing individuals have believed God is asleep and needs to be woken up. But they believed God is sleeping not out of abandonment or apathy. It wasn't out of rejection that God chose to sleep instead of care for his people. Like the other religions around them, the Israelites believed God was asleep because he had absolute dominion over everything in creation, including chaos itself. They knew God is the creator and sovereign over everything. They knew God's history with chaos. They remember God's prior triumph over chaos. They knew God is in complete and utter control for what happens in the world. Nothing happens that surprises or confuses God. And taking all of that into consideration in complete confidence, they believed God could sleep if he so chooses because nothing that happens in the world worries God. Nothing chaos can or chooses to do makes God lose sleep. Nothing keeps him up at night. God is not distant or apathetic to their problems, but instead, if chaos is seeming to gain a foothold, God must be sleeping and simply just needs to be aware of the situation happening. God needed a wake-up call because while the antics of chaos may not be big enough to disrupt God's slumber, the schemes of chaos were creating many sleepless nights for the people of God. And so we fast forward to the New Testament, to this short story about a rabbi from Nazareth weirdly sleeping in a storm during a chaotic windstorm. Are any light bulbs coming on for you this morning? This is the only instance in all four canonical gospels where we're told that Jesus was sleeping. And while we can safely assume Jesus was not an insomniac, Jesus took care of himself by regularly getting a good night's rest. But in this rare instance, this is the only time that three of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, go out of their way to tell us that Jesus was sleeping and that night in that storm. A critical detail that may, they may not want us to miss. Could it be? Could it be? Jesus was sleeping like God sleeps. Could Jesus be in so much control of that situation that he was able to take a nap despite everything going on? Could it be a clue as to who is in the boat with the disciples that night? Most interpreters in your study Bibles will say Jesus is fatigued and exhausted from ministry and as a result fell asleep quickly in the boat. They believe this is a glimpse into Jesus' humanity and as the incarnate Son of God. But can I offer you a different interpretation? Could it be the reverse is actually closer to the truth that because of Jesus' identity as the Son of God, it allowed him to sleep. God, God sleeps. 
It's not because of his humanity that he is sleeping, but because of his divinity that is sleeping. Jesus was sleeping because he was in complete and absolute control of that situation. Jesus is not being rude by being asleep. Jesus is simply being Jesus. Jesus is not disturbed or intimidated by the storm or anything chaos attempts to throw at him. The powers of chaos were attempting to impede Jesus' plans that evening to be a thorn in his side. But Jesus mocks their efforts by sleeping instead of granting chaos his undivided attention. But for the sake of others, Jesus will engage with chaos, his longtime nemesis, as God always do, always does, when he's called upon by his people. I've often wondered which of the 12 disciples was brave enough to wake Jesus up. Which one of the 12 had the courage to interrupt their master's evening nap? But I guess we'll never know because Mark says generally they woke Jesus and alerted them to their perilous situation. Jesus, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus wakes up to find 12 drenched men staring down on him, scared out of their wits. And as the boat is rocking back and forth, tossed by the waves, Jesus rolls out of his makeshift bed. The Son of God awakens to address the manifestation of chaos in that windstorm. And instead of panicking like the disciples were, Jesus gets up and merely talks to He confidently positions himself for a one-on-one conversation with chaos. And just like eons ago, when God spoke to the waters at creation, Jesus talks to chaos again. He speaks to the winds. He speaks to the waves. Mark says he rebuked them. Jesus speaks only three words. Peace, be still. And immediately, without delay, the wind ceased. The waters become still. The sea becomes calm. And the drenched and soggy group of disciples can only look in awe at what has just happened. They've never seen anything like this their entire lives. This carpenter and itinerant rabbi just manipulated the forces of nature to do his bidding with only three words and whether the disciples realized it at the time or not jesus did just did something that the old testament says only god is able to do but jesus isn't finished he doesn't return to his makeshift cushion bed in the stern just yet he's not through talking that night he has something he wants to ask the 12 why are you so afraid Have you still no faith? The disciples offer no reply, but only talk amongst themselves. They appear to be too skittish to directly respond and talk with Jesus after what just happened. And you and I would be too if we just saw what they saw. The only thing on their minds is who then is this? Who have we been tagging along with this entire time? Who was sleeping that we woke up? Who do we have in our boat this evening? Our earliest Christian ancestors, pastors and teachers living 50 to 100 years after the apostles, interpreted the story 
this way. They imagine the boat is the church. And they argue that the church will always be tossed by the waves because it exists in a chaotic, prone world where persecution and temptations are possible. But they believe that Christ is still faithfully with his church, patiently suffering with us through the storms of this life, but also willing to calm them if called upon. May the church never forget that Jesus is in our boat, that the one in our boat is none other than God's Son, that Emmanuel, God with us, is in our boat. We have the Son of God in our boat, the one who the disciples found sleeping, not because he was tuckered out, not because he was ignoring the plight of the disciples, but because he is is more powerful than anything chaos can throw at him. Jesus mocks the attempts of chaos to ruffle his feathers. Jesus laughs in the face of chaos, trying to thwart his plans. And the same word of God that commanded the waters be separated is the same word of God who said, peace, be still. And this same word is in our boat. The one who can calm any storm, no matter how turbulent or hostile, he is in our boat. And we can speak to him. We can cry out to the word of God to speak on our behalf to chaos. We have the honor of awaking Jesus to talk directly to chaos for us, if and how he chooses to do so. What a privilege we have because the word of God chooses to be in our boat. Church, chaos still exists in this world. Chaos still stings us. We cannot predict it. We cannot always comprehend it. We cannot always seem to navigate ourselves out of it. It it disorients us, often turns us against one another and divides us. It suffocates us. It distorts reality. It may even feel endless. And it teases and tempts us either to abandon ship or sink with it, resorting to play nearer my God to Lee like those on the Titanic. In the end, it wants us to forget who is in our boat. The one who can break us free from chaos, holding us hostage by despair and fear. It wants us to forget about the one who is bringing order to where chaos is. Jesus is in our boat. The Son of God is still in our boat, church. He has not abandoned ship. He has not abandoned you. He is right there with us as he has always been to those who love him. He is not frightened. He is not panicked or intimidated by the forces of chaos and darkness. He is not surprised or overwhelmed by the, by the situation. He is riding the waves with us. He will not let his church sink, no matter what the lies of the enemy are. Because Jesus is on our boat, we do not have to despair because of the storms of this life. The church has no reason to fear for its future. Because Jesus is in our boat. We do not need to look for politicians or other leaders to be in our boat for safe passage in this world. No matter what our podcasts and news correspondents try to tell us, the church has survived this long through thick and thin, through similar if not same storms because of the one individual who has been in our boat since the beginning. And that is Jesus 
Jesus will never leave our boat unless we want him to, or we cast him out of it, or we abandon the boat ourselves. As someone who naturally tends to worry a lot, we call ourselves realist, by the way, I find peace remembering and knowing that Jesus is in my boat. When I face temptations, Jesus is in my boat. When I encounter major life decisions, Jesus is in my boat. When life doesn't go the way I want it to, Jesus is in my boat. When bad things happen in this world or to those I love, Jesus is in my boat. When I have doubts, when I listen to the lies of the winds and the waves, Jesus is still in my boat. This sermon series we've been talking about, do what Jesus did, but today we may have encountered something Jesus did that we can't do. We'll never be able to sleep like Jesus slept or calm storms like Jesus calmed. But maybe we were never expected to because that's Jesus' job, not ours. Jesus' inquiry into the faith of the disciples was not that they should have had enough faith, faith to sleep during the storm or be able to rebuke it like him. He simply expected them to manage their fear by knowing that he was there, that he was able, and that he would act. Perhaps that's what faith in Jesus is all about even today. Perhaps faith is confidently knowing that Jesus is supreme over chaos, knowing that Jesus is capable of stilling storms, and most importantly, remembering that Jesus is in our boat. Perhaps that can help us through our sleepless nights and through our many stormy seasons. Robert Louis Stevenson, remembered for his stories like Treasure Island and the strange case of Dr. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, once told another story about a boat traveling a storm. It was night and the waves brought the boat dangerously close to a rocky shore. The wind threatened to drive the boat to destruction on the rocks. The passengers were confined below deck while the crew struggled to keep the boat afloat and away from danger. They were terrified, not knowing what was going to happen or if the next few moments would be their last. Finally, one passenger decided to defy the orders of the captain and see what was going on. He climbed up to the deck and made his way to the pilot house. The deck of the ship was slick and wet. Either he could slip and crack his skull or he was in danger of the wind blowing him overboard. Slowly, grabbing whatever he could to hold himself firm, he made it to the pilot house and looked in. He saw the steersman holding on to the ship's wheel unwaverly. Inch by inch, the steerman was trying to turn the boat away from the rocks and out into the stormy sea, and the pilot looked over to the storm-drenched passenger and simply smiled. The passenger made his way back, inch by inch, along the treacherous deck, swept by winds and waves. He climbed down the stairs to the room where the other passengers were all huddled together in fear and gave them a note of good cheer. Fear not, he said, for I have seen the face of the pilot. And he smiled. All is well. Remember that Jesus is in your boat. He smiled. All is well. 